Every great story has a climax, right? The story of Exodus is so great, it has three. There are three mountaintop, pinnacle, climactic moments throughout this story. And in each of our three sections of preaching through this book, we're going to come to another one of these mountaintop moments. We'll arrive at another one of these climaxes. We're going to get to the first of the three this morning. And in next week, we're actually going to wrap up this first part of Exodus. We're going to preach through chapter 15, and then this first section of Exodus is done. This morning, we get to the first of these mountaintop, pinnacle-like moments in the book of Exodus. Today, we're coming to the very well-known story of the crossing of the Red Sea. Okay. Even if you're not familiar with the Bible, if you don't have a framework didn't grow up with a background of this book, there's a good chance you've still probably heard the story of the Red Sea. Maybe you don't know all the details, you don't know the facts, and yet, if nothing else, you've got perhaps an image of Charlton Heston sort of burned into your mind, arms stretched out, and the water in that cheesy, you know, sci-fi way sort of splits, right? So if nothing else, you've got some kind of recollection of this story. If you did grow up with a background of the Bible, have some familiarity with the scriptures, you've undoubtedly heard this story. And perhaps you even know that this story is so well known, even within the Bible, that other biblical authors will constantly go back to this story. So throughout the scriptures, the other writers will keep going back to the text we're looking at today, Exodus 14. And they'll keep going back to make reference to it, to make allusion to it, to point to it in some way or somehow. For example, if you go throughout the Old Testament, you'll see that all the time. In the book of Joshua, when Joshua is trying to rally the troops to trust in the Lord, he'll remind them of what God did at the Red Sea. Or when the psalmist wants to call the people of God to praise the Lord and tell of his works, he'll remind them of what God did at the Red Sea. When the prophets, like Isaiah, want to speak of the power of the Lord and the redeeming strength of his hand, he'll remind them of what God did at the Red Sea. Over and over again, through references, illusion, it goes back to Exodus 14. But it's not just contained in the first half of the Bible, in just the Old Testament. No, the, the breadth of the scriptures keep looking back to this moment. Even in the New Testament, when the writer of Hebrews is trying to speak to Christians who are gathered as churches like we are today, when, when the writer is trying to ascribe to them the kind of faith that they need, he'll point back to what God did at the Red Sea as an example for them to look at. There's allusions, references all throughout the scriptures. Perhaps none greater than the Apostle Paul, who when he's writing to the church plant at Corinth in 1 Corinthians, much like us, a baby church, and trying to explain to them what it means to have new life in Christ, what salvation is, what baptism is, he'll go back to speak about what God did at the Red Sea. What I'm trying to get across is this, that throughout the scriptures... When the people of God, when the biblical authors are trying to explain things like salvation, they constantly go back to this passage, to this story. Because in some ways, this passage is the story, the example of salvation. You might say it's the exemplar par excellence, right? Have you heard that phrase? 
you got to sort of say it with a snotty French accent for it to really work, right? The exemplar par excellence, right? And when you say that phrase, it's just a fancy phrase that means the best example of something. You want to know something? Well, look at the exemplar par excellence. And then you got a vision for how the whole thing works, right? So if you want to know English lit, go read Shakespeare. He is the exemplar par excellence. You, you dabble with Shakespeare, you get a good understanding of the whole thing. You want to know how classical music sounds, feels, works? Listen to Mozart. He is the exemplar par excellence. You want to know how to play basketball? You look at Michael Jordan. No matter what jealous, bitter Scotty Pippen says, <laughs> you do not look at LeBron James, you look at Michael Jordan, right? For that to be preaching of a different kind. No, he is the exemplar par excellence. You want to know how to play the game? You watch him. If you're in the realm of Christianity and you want to know how does salvation work, what is this? How does this thing happen? Well, then many would argue you go to Exodus 14. It's the exemplar par excellence of salvation because it's all here. How it is, what it is, how it works, how it happens, it's all right here in this one story. And I think what you're going to discover by the time we get through the end of Exodus 14 is that salvation is a powerless people who are saved by grace through a powerful mediator. I'll say that again. Salvation is a powerless people who are saved by grace through a powerful mediator. Okay. We'll pray for a moment, ask the Lord for his help, and then we'll dive into this story together. Let's pray. Our Lord, we look upon you with need at this time, and we ask you to come and be a part of this next hour together, these next few minutes together. Come give us grace to both hear and proclaim your word well, in both the hearing and the preaching of it. I pray from my mouth that it would be yielded to your Holy Spirit, that you would allow me to say only what your text says and proclaim faithfully and well the word of God and be with our ears. By nature, we are hard-hearted, blind in our eyes, deaf in our ears, dull in our minds. And so we ask the Holy Spirit to come, illuminate our minds, open our ears, give us sight, Soften our hearts that we might hear, see, receive, believe, and understand your word. And that through it all we might be brought to Jesus and to his salvation. It's in his name, for his sake, and his glory that we pray. Amen. Okay, we're going to start in chapter 13. We're on page 55. If you've got the Black Bible, we're actually going to start at verse 17. So we're in Exodus 13, let me pick it up at verse 17. Here's what it says. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness towards the Red Sea. Skip down to verse 20. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, 
that they might travel by day and by night. Verse 22, the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. Okay, here's where we're at. Last week, if you were here, we said that God had done the ten plagues on Egypt. He had finally convinced hard-hearted Pharaoh that he was God. There is no one like Yahweh. Yahweh went to town on all the false gods of Egypt, and the people were set free. When you get to verse 17, what you find is God is now leading this freed people out of the enslaved land. He's walking them out. It's a very unique scene because now it's not just Moses who's leading them out. God himself is there, physically present through a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And God is literally walking his people out of the land that they've been enslaved in, that they've been for 400 something years. The only thing is that God is leading them, but honestly, it seems like God is a bit lost. Like he's reading the map quest a little wrong, or he's in a tunnel and the satellite's not picking up the GPS. He just seems like he's not really sure where he's going. Because when you read verse 17 and following, and you begin to see the direction that God is taking them, it seems like God is a bit directionally challenged, right? One commentator in trying to trace the steps that the people took, said that they generally went south, southeast, then north, and northeast. So the direction God is taking them is south and southeast, and then north and northeast. That'd be like trying to get to Boston by taking 276 west and 95 south, right? God seems like he's not really sure where he's going. He seems like me when it comes to directions, right? He seems no better at driving than I do. If you know me, you know that I can't get from here to the kitchen without getting lost. I once missed a baptism that I was supposed to help conduct because I was lost on the wrong side of the lake. And so the pastor is waiting there with the people to dunk, waiting for me to show up, and finally I have to dunk them without me because that's how bad I am at directions. That's what God seems like, right? And I can just picture one of the Israelite women in the back saying, Tell him to pull over. Stop being proud. Just ask for directions. Right? God seems like, where is he taking this people? So what is it? Is God lost? Or worse, has he abandoned this people? Brought them out in great displays of power only to let them be lost in the desert? No, of course not. Read again verse 17. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, Although that was near, for God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. Here's what's happening. There was a short, direct, straight shot out of Egypt. And yet God knew that that was the land invaded by, occupied by the Philistines, that that would pose a threat of war. And at the first sight of war, this band of 600,000 plus former slaves is going to say, let's go back to Egypt. So here's what's happening. God knew his people even better than they knew themselves. And so though there was a way that was near and short, did not take them there because he knows what's in his people. And so takes them in a longer route, takes them through the wilderness. My, may I pause here for just a second to suggest that this text might be incredibly relevant to you and incredibly true for many of you right in this season of life or in a season that is yet to come. Maybe in your life, where you are right now, you feel like, 
I don't know if the Lord's leading me. And if he is, I wish he would pull over and ask for directions. Because he just seems lost. Like he's meandering. Like I know where I need to go. And I just wish he would get me there. Rather than the roundabout he seems to be taking. Some of you know this well. Some of you at Seven Mile Road, maybe you're single. And your soul is aching to be married. And you know it's just point A to point B. God, get me there. And why is it that God seems so determined to take me to point Z, E, M, P before just bringing me to B? Or maybe some of you are married and your souls together are aching for children. And yet why does it seem like God won't just bring you from here to there but seems determined to take you on this roundabout. The, the path to where you want to be is right there. And although it's near, he seems determined to take you on this roundabout. Or maybe you've got a calling in your life, some vocation, some dream set before you and you feel like that's what God wants for us. And yet why does it seem like he won't just get us there? Why am I not there doing that, rather stuck here doing this? Or maybe there's some problem, some obstacle in your life, and to you the resolution seems crystal clear. You take care of this, it'll all be done. And why does it seem like rather than doing that, rather than taking me the short route, you are dead set on delays and roundabouts and misdirection? Might I suggest to you, or this morning, would you allow this text to remind you that God's delays and God's direction does not indicate that he has abandoned you or that he's lost somehow in your life. Hear that again. I have no reason why he's bringing you through the roundabouts, through the long directions. You see where you ought to be, and yet you can't seem to get there. But I do know this. The text tells us God has reasons you do not know. Here, he knew what was in his people. And for their good, though it seemed to them like the best way would be the short and direct way, God saw what was in them. And might I suggest to you, might the text remind you, God knows you better than you know yourself. And God may be sparing you because of what he sees in you, or desiring to put something else in you. But I do know the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire were right there. They were not abandoned by God. And yet all these extra steps were ordained by him, led by him. You don't have a pillar of cloud and fire. What you have is not the presence of God somewhere in the distance to look at. You have the Holy Spirit, you who belong to Jesus, in you, leading you, directing you, guiding you. Some of you may feel like, well, if I saw a pillar of cloud and fire, that would help me believe. But, but this invisible Holy Spirit, how does that help might I suggest the Israelites saw it and they were no more believing than we were. We have something greater. And so it's not seeing alone that would remove it for you. You have a great opportunity for faith that God is not lost in your life, that God is not needlessly wasting your time. But God knows something about you and is directing you for his purposes. Or maybe even, like for the people of Israel, because he wants to show you something greater. Because he wants to do something greater. God takes these people, rather than the straight shot, roundabout through the wilderness and banks them right at the shores of the Red Sea. 
And that's when you begin to see just truly how powerless this people were. Right? Remember we said, salvation is about a powerless people. And now you begin to get a glimpse into truly how powerless this people were. In verse 17 of chapter 13, we already said, God couldn't take them the short way because if they saw the Philistines, they might be tempted to go back to Egypt. And what you begin to read throughout chapter 14 and throughout the succeeding history of Israel is that this longing to go back to Egypt is this reoccurring thing in their lives. Every time it becomes a little bit difficult, Egypt seems like this great option. In chapter 14, God basically leads them and takes them to the Red Sea. When that happens, they look like a band of probably a million folks or so who are sort of lost in the desert. And that's exactly the word that returns back to Pharaoh. In verses 5 through 9, what you find is Pharaoh's back in Egypt, and he hears word that these former slaves are now stuck in the wilderness. Rather than going the straight way everyone would have expected, they're now stuck at the Red Sea. And what happens is you read through 5 through 9, we won't read it now, is Pharaoh's heart returns to this hardened state. Remember, he had this short-term repentance where for a moment he said, okay, everyone go, Moses, pray that God would bless me also. And yet his heart had not truly changed at all because the moment things get hard, it's like the light bulbs go back on. Who's going to serve us now? Who's going to make our cities? And so he's determined to go get them back and his thought is, either we'll get them or we'll kill them. Hear this for a second. Pharaoh's thought is that when this chapter is done, when Exodus 14 is done, either the slaves are going to be back or their dead bodies are going to wash up by that shore. That's his aim. That's his goal. That's his purpose. That by the time this is done, either they will be back in slavery or their dead bodies will be washing up on that shore. He's going to go back and get them. And so now Israel is here. It's this great story where they're trapped in between an angry sea in front of them and an even angrier army behind them. They've got nowhere to go. They've got the Red Sea in front of them and Pharaoh and his chariots barreling down on them. Pharaoh's assembled together 600 of his best chariots along with all the other chariots, the horsemen, the officers. The whole nation is out to recapture these slaves. What do they do? How do they respond? Listen to what they say in verse 11 and 12, chapter 14. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out, uh, bringing us out of Egypt? Verse 12. I love this. Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than die in the wilderness. Mm. That's some revisionist history if there ever was one, right? There they are. The sea is in front of them. Pharaoh's behind them. And they go, listen, didn't we tell you to just leave us? We wanted to stay in Egypt. We loved serving the Pharaoh. And you forced our hand and brought us out. Why? Because there weren't graves in Egypt that we should die out here in the wilderness? You've been walking through these chapters. Did you ever hear them say, No, Moses, leave us alone. We are happy as pie here. And yet now here they are going, Why did you bring us out? We told you, just let us stay in Egypt. And again, this longing for Egypt, 
is going to return over and over again. In fact, as far as years later, Numbers is going to tell us they're in the wilderness, they're starving a little bit, and they go, listen, that's it. Enough with Moses. We're forming a band of people. They elect some leaders to take them back to Egypt. And they start reminiscing and saying, didn't we eat cucumbers and melons and onions there? You know things are bad when cucumbers, melons, and onions sounds good, right? <laughs> and so they go, we, we need to go back. And it's sort of what, I won't labor the point here, what we said last week. God has brought them out of Egypt. But the journey of getting Egypt out of them is going to be much, much longer. A much deeper slavery that they need to be set free from. Every moment things get hard, Egypt begins to look so sweet, like they can keep going back. And that's when you begin to see, how powerless are these people? They can't seem to shake the slavery, not just off them, but in them. They were set free, and yet they can't seem to shake it off. As I was thinking through this, I was reminded of a scene from Shawshank Redemption. If you've seen that movie, you know that there's this one man who's an older man, the guy who's working in the library, and he was in prison from when he was a boy, and then he was set free, and what happens? He's now set free. He spent his whole life in prison, he's set free, and yet he's so conditioned by his slavery, he doesn't know what to do on the outside. And the scene ends with him hanging himself in freedom because prison was a better life for him. And I feel like that's what the Israelites are like. And I feel like that's what we said last week, my soul is like. I've been set free. And yet this slavery is so deeply woven into me, I, I can't seem to shake it off. That's how powerless these people are. They've been set free. And yet constantly their hearts are drawn back to Egypt. I almost want to call them pathetic. Right? And yet over and over again I see them like a mirror to myself. How truly powerless these people are. But here's the thing. Their powerlessness makes them prime candidates for salvation. Hear that again. Their powerlessness makes them prime candidates for salvation. Remember what we said. Salvation is a powerless people who are saved by grace. Let's think through that. Who are saved by grace. You get to the meat of the story in verses 19 to 31. That's where all the action begins to take place. The people essentially cry out to Moses and say, Why did you bring us here? Do something. And in verse 21, he does something. Listen to what it says. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, and the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. They cry out to Moses, and now here it is, a powerless people who are about to be saved by grace. What does it look like? Moses stretches out his hand, the sea parts. The next chapter, in chapter 15, almost poetically, the people are going to say, by the blast of his nostrils, that God just breathed, and the sea went to two directions. Like you imagine what would have happened if he sneezed. 
right? He breathed out and suddenly the waters part and they form a wall on either side. That's what it says, a wall of water on their right hand and their left. And the word used here is not just a stone fence that you could sort of tippy-toe and see across. This is the same language of skyscrapers. A skyscraper of water on their right hand and on their left hand. And they walk safely through. Every last one of them walk across on dry ground. And then the Egyptians see this and they begin to drool. And what they don't know is that God is sort of dangling Israel like a fisherman with bait and proud Pharaoh bites. Right? He's got them looking lost, though they're not. And now he's got them walking through the sea and Pharaoh and his proud army pursue and they chase them. And now only will this be sweet if you remember where we come from and where we started. When we started, this was Pharaoh and the powerful nation who was going to do what? Who was going to destroy Israel in the waters. And not just destroy Israel in the waters. He was afraid that the boys would grow up and become an army. And so he was going to drown the future army of Israel in the waters. And yet when this is done, God turns the whole thing around. By the time this is done, who's drowning in the waters? And who's done by the sea? Listen to how God brings justice. It's a long passage, but here, verse 23 to 31. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea. All Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. 27. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the host of Pharaoh that followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Pharaoh was pursuing them. Why? Because they're either coming back as slaves or their dead bodies are going to wash up on the shore. Pharaoh started this whole story because he's going to drown the army of Israel in the sea. By the time this is done, the powerful army of Egypt is swallowed up by the sea and Israel sees their dead bodies washing up on the shore. What a great salvation. What a great salvation. A powerful foe defeated and a powerless people who are saved by grace. What is salvation? It's a powerless people who are saved. You could say that as crossed over or who cross over. 
When the New Testament wants to describe what salvation is like, this is the metaphor and the picture they're going to constantly return to, that you've crossed over. That's the language John's going to use, that everyone who believes in Jesus has crossed over from death to life. And that's the way it is. It's that you were one thing one moment, and you crossed over, and you were another thing now. You were dead, and you're alive. You were lost, and you're found. You were blind, and you now see. You could not hear. You were deaf, and now you hear. You were in sin, and now you have been saved. The powerless people who are saved, that's they've crossed over. This one famous preacher named Lloyd-Jones used to say to his people, Are you a Christian? And often people would modestly respond to him, I'm trying. Maybe some of you have said that. Are you a Christian? I'm trying. I'm doing my best. And he would say, that means you have not the slightest idea what Christianity is. If you think being a Christian is, I'm trying, I'm working at it, I'm really giving it my all, then you have no idea what Christianity is. Because it's a state. You either are or you aren't. You've either crossed over or you haven't. You are either dead or you are alive. You are either lost or you are found. You are either blind or you can now see. You are either in sin or you have been saved, crossed over by grace. That's what salvation is. It's by grace. Hear that. How does this crossing over happen? It's not through any trying of theirs. It's not through any effort of theirs. It's an effortless triangless crossing over. You think to yourself, why are these people saved? Think through that. Why are they saved? Why would God save anyone? Deep down in your heart, you think, there's got to be something that the people did. Maybe they kept the law. Nope. The law doesn't appear for another five chapters. Well, they had to have done something. What did they do that they should be crossed over, that they should be saved? Did you notice verse 13 and 14 of chapter 14? Here's what they did. Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you only have to be silent. What do you do? You stand still. Another translation says, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. What did these people do that they crossed over? Nothing. Nothing. How does salvation work? It's a powerless people who are saved, who cross over by grace. They add nothing. They contribute nothing. The only thing required of them is that they stand still and see and, and watch God do the work. Did you hear the language? God will do the work for you. God will fight for you. No one adds a thing. No one contributes a thing. Hear that. Everything in your heart, in your DNA says, I've got to do something. And the scriptures are saying, your contribution would actually take away rather than add. It would be like if you could picture one Israelite breaking out of rank, grabbing a sword and running up against Pharaoh. Nobody would go, oh, what a brave man. They would go, what a fool. God's working the salvation. He only needs to walk and receive it. Why would he think he could add anything to him? Don't you see God split the waters? All you need to do is receive it and walk through it by faith. 
by faith. And Hebrews does say that the people walked across by faith. That they had done nothing. God had worked his salvation for them. And they walked through it by faith. And maybe some of you go, that's what we need. I need the right kind of faith. There's one pastor named Tim Keller. He says it well. And this hit home with me. He said, the kind of faith. I can imagine that as the people were walking across, even as I think about Seven Mile Road, if I pictured our church walking across the Red Sea, I think there'd be two kinds of us. There'd be some of us, and you can imagine who they are, who go, this is awesome. God is working for us. God is defeating the enemy. What a great God we have. This is amazing. We and our children are going to sing at the other side of the shore. And you can imagine there's another side of us, probably led by Jim, who's, who's probably going... We're going to die. We're going to die. We're going to die. Any moment this wall is going to collapse and we're going to die, we're going to die. Right? And yet, both get across. Why? Not because of the quality of their faith, but because of the quality of the object of their faith. Not because their faith was strong enough, but because God in whom their faith was, was strong enough. Not because they could hold on tightly enough to him, but because his grip was tight enough to hold on to them. Some of you have just crawling on your knees kind of faith. But what a good word it is for you that that's just the kind of faith God loves to use. And just the kind of people he loves to save. Because you know who God saves? Powerless people. Powerless slaves walk across. Powerful Pharaoh drowns at the bottom. When this is all done... The powerless are saved, and the powerful are drowned and dying. How does salvation work? It's a powerless people who are saved by grace. Lastly, it's salvation is a powerless people who are saved by grace through a powerful mediator. Hear this last one. And again, I, I heard a sermon by Tim Keller that was so helpful to me for this. A powerless people who are saved by grace through a powerful mediator. Do you notice Moses' role in this whole thing? Look back again to verse 13. In verse 13, the people cry out and they complain to Moses. Moses has what I think is probably an excellent response. It's what we've already covered. He says to them, listen, stand firm, fear not. God is going to work a great salvation for you. All you need to do is be still and be silent. But then a very interesting thing happens. Look at verse 15. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. And then in verse 16 onwards, he gives them more directions. Did you notice the tone in which God speaks to Moses? God rebukes Moses in verse 15. And so now you've got to pause and go, What is that about? Here are the people, they are grumbling with lack of faith. And the only one who says a good word, a right word, is Moses. Right? What does he say? He says, listen people, fear not, stand firm, God is going to work a salvation for you. And yet when God speaks to Moses, he rebukes Moses. Why? You've got to let that sort of sit for a second for you to get how unfair that is. Because if there's anyone who's good right now, it's Moses. In fact, Moses seems distinct from his people, like here are a bunch of faithless people, and here's the one good one among them, and yet he gets a rebuke he does not deserve. 
What is that appointing you to? See, here's what Moses was. Moses was acting as a mediator. What's that? He's acting as a middleman between God and man. And in doing so, here's what happens. He is so identified with this people that their unbelief is essentially transferred to him. So that when God looks at him, he rebukes him for the people that he represents. And at the same time, he is so identified with God that it will be through Moses' outstretched hands that the power of God would be known and this people would experience salvation. He's so identified with the people that their sin is essentially transferred to him and God rebukes him though he was in the right. And at the same time so identified with God that it would be through his outstretched hands that the power of God would be known, that the enemy would be swallowed up and that God's people would be set free. Who is all that a shadow of? The scriptures say we have a better mediator. As you keep reading through Exodus, and we're going to come back to this, Moses is good. He's really good, and he's so close to being the mediator we want and need. But what you find out is at the end of his life, he gets ticked at the people one time in a way that he probably shouldn't, and God essentially judges them, and he dies on this side of the promised land. He doesn't even make it across. And so then you read that, and you go, oh, he was so good and so close, but we needed someone better. But friends... The scriptures say there's good news. 1 Timothy 2 verse 5, hear this. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. The better mediator that we needed, God himself provided. Salvation is a powerless people who are saved by grace through a powerful mediator. Here's what Jesus did. Jesus represented us perfectly to God and represented God perfectly to us. Here was Jesus, so identified with us, fully man, so that he, the only one who was good when we were bad, the only one who was faithful when we were faithless, the only one who was sinless when we were sinful, and yet God looks at him and he's so identified with us that our sin is essentially transferred to him. He who knew no sin becomes sin for us. So that when God looks down, he doesn't just rebuke Jesus. He judges Jesus. He kills Jesus. And Jesus gets what all of us deserve. Jesus is put under the mighty waters of God's judgment. And he drowns under the guilt of our sin. For crimes he did not commit the only one who was doing what was right. And God not only rebukes him, but condemns him and hurls him to his death. He's swallowed up by the grave. And yet at the same time, he was both fully man and fully God so that he could perfectly represent God to us so that at his outstretched arms, he was working a great salvation for us. So that through his outstretched arms, nailed as they were to the cross, the enemy was being defeated and swallowed up. This is why the New Testament will say, where, O oh, death, is your sting? Where, O oh, grave, is your victory? Death has been swallowed up as though it was put under the sea, like it was drowned in the Red Sea. And Jesus mediates God for us so that through him, 
we receive mercy and the enemies of death and Satan and hell are put forever to death. A better mediator who has worked a better salvation for an even more powerless people like us. It's all here. What is salvation? Salvation is a powerless people who are saved by grace through a powerful mediator. So friends, here's my questions to you. I've got three of them as we close. One, have you recognized yourself to be powerless? Are you still trying to add? Are you still trying to contribute? Are you still grabbing a sword and going after Pharaoh yourself? Trying to set yourself free or finding some other savior other than the Lord himself? Are you seeing how powerless you are? Are you seeing that even some of you who have become Christians, this former slavery still keeps holding you? And have you cried out to the Lord that you are powerless? As though you're saying to God, God, here's me, a perfect candidate for salvation, because that's how weak I am. I don't trust anything in myself. No work, no merit, nothing in me that could save me. Powerless. And second, have you crossed over by grace? Have you crossed over? Hear me, when I ask you, are you a Christian? If you say to me, I'm trying, and maybe you find the right answer, but if in your heart you feel like, I'm trying, you haven't gotten it. Have you crossed over from death to life, from lostness to foundness, from sin to freedom? And lastly, are you trusting in this powerful, perfect mediator who has earned the rebuke you he didn't deserve for you, and who has been swallowed up, but in his swallowing up, has swallowed up death and all of our enemies and set us free. If you've answered no to any of them, today is the day of salvation. You can leave here trusting in Jesus for all three. If you've said yes to any of them, then what should you do? You should do what Israel does at the end. In verse 31, they fear the Lord, they believe him. In chapter 15, they sing like redeemed people would. And that's what we're going to do in a moment. You get to respond in song so that when you sing, you're not just mouthing words. You're singing as people who are on the other side of that shore who have been set free. Let's pray.